Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Sedalia, Missouri. In this sermon, Pastor Chris Guffey continues his series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Join us as we dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter number 4, verse 2, down to verse number 6. Again, speak on the subject matter of no regret, no reserve, and no retreat. No regret, no reserve, and no retreat. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 2, down to verse number 6, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One of the more interesting storylines of Scripture, and there are many storylines in Scripture, but in my view, one of the more interesting storylines of Scripture is really the cosmic battle between two forces that plays out from page one all the way until the end, right? And specifically, these two forces are always pictured as light versus darkness, truth versus error, or you might even say the kingdom of God versus a kingdom of evil. It really begins in Genesis chapter 3 with the temptation of the serpent where we are introduced to this enemy of the kingdom of God, against God's children, Adam and Eve, right? And essentially, the enemy comes to them, and he argues that mankind should take the lead in this battle, that they should switch sides, as it were, that they should rule over themselves. When Adam and Eve fall there in Genesis chapter 3, there is this promise by God that there will be dire consequences should they switch sides, as it were, and yet they make the decision that they will do that, that they will rebel against God. And likewise, we know that what happens, or because of these things, we know what happens following that. Because they choose to rebel against God, there's this struggle that is promised to all of us, to their children, you and I this morning. There's a struggle in all of life. That that struggle will exist until God chooses to restore creation and mankind back to their original state of perfection and holiness. Everything from the relationship there in Genesis 3 is promised between the two of them to creation itself, will play out the consequence of this faithful decision to rebel against God and to choose a kingdom of darkness over a kingdom of light or a kingdom of error over the kingdom of truth. That promise goes to the heart of the message of the gospel as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, that the writers of the New Testament show us that the world we inhabit, the world we live in, is in chaos because man has rebelled against our Creator. And all of that, what we see around us, is ultimately the result of man's faithful rejection of God. I don't have to prove that to you this morning. We know it. We see it all around us, don't we? We see it in the news. We see it in our politics. We see it in our schools. We see it in our workplaces. We see it literally all around us. From Genesis chapter 3 onward, we see the chaos of a world in turmoil in a world that is in utter fight, in conflict, in war with itself and in, with its creator. From Genesis chapter 3, we see this storyline that plays out. 
First, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. You remember them well. One accepted by God and the other rejected. And as a direct result of their relationship with their creator, they live in conflict with one another, which ultimately uh, culminates or climaxes with one killing the other. Good versus evil, light versus darkness, truth versus error, and we see it play out in the very opening uh, story. Then from Cain and Abel, we move on to the story of Noah's flood, wherein the scriptures once again contrast two kingdoms in front of us. There is the kingdom of God represented by the righteousness of Noah, the sons of Seth, as it were. And then you have the kingdom of darkness represented by the increasingly evil generation that is around Noah and his family. We move from Genesis, uh, or from Noah's flood to Genesis chapter 11. And once again, we find mankind in conflict with God. The people decide they're going to build a tower, which many scholars interpret as their way of saying that God would not rule and reign over them. God would not control them. They wanted to build a tower so tall that if God ever decided to flood the earth again, he would not be able to flood them as though they were in control of their own destinies. And at the same time, God being desirous that they would live in submission to him. And once again, they, these two worlds come into conflict. From there, we come to the story of a man by the name of Abraham. The whole world, we're told, is populated with people who live in open rebellion to God. But Abraham is chosen by God to be different, called out by God to be the father of the many nations, who is to be the father of Jacob and Esau, who rely. From Abraham, we move on to Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, who represent two different kingdoms once again, right? God chooses one to carry on the promises that he's given to their father, Abraham, and the other one will sell his birthright off for just a good cup of soup, right? Two contrasting peoples. In fact, in their story, even in their mother's womb, they were fighting, right? And God says, literally, there are two nations, two peoples fighting, warring with one another, and you're going to see this carry out in their lifetimes, Following their story, following Jacob's story, then we're told the story of his 12 sons, one of them by the name of Joseph, right? Chosen by God and blessed by his father. And that causes conflict with his brothers who want to live in open rebellion. And so they throw their brother into a pit, leaving him for dead. Joseph, Joseph leads us to Moses, where we find God's people living in a foreign land, setting up a battle between the most powerful force in the known world and the, against the God, or set against the God, the one who rules and reigns over all things, who would win. Moses then leads the people into the conquest of the, of the Israelites, who are ordered to go into battle over and over again, and to trust that God would give them the land that he had promised to their father hundreds of years before in Abraham. From the people's conquest in the new lands, we're taken into the time of the judges, where each leads the people in both a military victory over their neighbors, but also a revival of spiritual victory amongst God's people. So from defeat to victory over and over again. From judges, then we are led into the time of the kings, which begins with a conflict between two kingdoms once again. There is David pit against Saul. Saul is the people's choice. He's strong. He's handsome. He's accomplished. David, on the other hand, is the small shepherd boy, but he's the one who's chosen by God. Which kingdom, which king will rule and reign? Which king will be the one who is going to lead the people? From the kings, then, we're led into the time of the exiles in the Old Testament. From, from there, we see the prophets rise up, and they pronounce judgment upon the people for their sin. And once again, we see this contrast. 
God's people are in turmoil, they're in exile, they're at loss because they've rejected their God, while the enemies of God rule over them as the discipline that God has pronounced. But in all of that, there's this looming promise that God will deliver them at the appropriate time, and so he does. The prophets promised of a coming Messiah, a suffering servant who would restore all that had been lost. Namely, he was going to restore God's kingdom, which they felt like had been lost to the kingdom of this world. So we're then led into the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the gospel pages, and where the gospel writer John specifically opens up as God with these, these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now listen to this, and the light shone into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There it is, those two kingdoms once again. The scene is then set in the New Testament. God's Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, was sent into the world for this final showdown, a showdown which would pit the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light, the kingdom of air against the kingdom of truth, God's kingdom against the evil one's kingdom. And as the story unfolds, we see the constant turmoil and the war. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, what we see is Jesus battling spiritual elites. He then battles the governmental forces, which have joined forces with the spiritual elites. He even uh, battles against the powers of hell itself, and then he battles against his very own. As the gospel writer John says, he came to his own, and his own did not welcome him. He's then led to a bloody cross, and we're brought for a moment to the brink of darkness, defeating the light, and we're left wondering, will this be the end of the kingdom of light? And instead, the light prevails as he's resurrected from the dead, and we have this glorious hope because Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. It's that culmination of the story, as the gospel writers tell it. It's the culmination of the story that has been being played out since all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. From page to page, as we turn from one character to the next, the story of God's work in the world is two epic forces squaring off in some cosmic battle, light versus darkness. And as each page turns, we find that the light does indeed prevail. If I go back and look at those stories again, what do we see? Sure, Cain kills Abel, but God restores in the birth of Seth. The darkness is destroyed, but Noah and his family are saved. Abraham's descendants are saved from starvation through the rise of Joseph, despite the evil works of his brother. Moses is used by God to deliver the people out of Egyptian hands. The most powerful leader of the world is thwarted by an unseen hand by God himself. The Israelites conquer the new land and establish God's kingdom. David overcomes Saul's. The king call the kings lead the prophets into darkness, but through exile, God brings his people back. And yes, Christ is crucified only to rise again. There's a storyline in all of that, one that will be played out for millennia and is even still being played out in our life today. You see, beloved, those two kingdoms are still in a cosmic battle today. Today we live in 2022 where light is still fighting against reason that that conflict is fighting against evil, righteousness against unrighteousness, and the reason that that conflict exists, the reason that storyline exists is because those two forces, diametrically opposed to one another, cannot coexist. You see, beloved, darkness hates light. Evil hates good, and unrighteousness hates what is righteous. 
you thought that Star Wars was an original manuscript. Really, they just stole it from the Scriptures, right? And as every storyline plays out, light always ends up defeating the darkness, which gives me just a small glimmer of hope this morning, and I hope it will give it to you as well. You see, Solomon was right when he wrote in the wisdom literature in the Ecclesiastes that there truly is nothing new under the sun this morning. The battles we see waged today are a part of this age-old struggle between light and darkness, between truth and error, between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. And if history and God's word are to be believed, it's only a matter of time before that battle will be won once again, despite how dark it may seem in your life this morning. All of that, however, has led me to ask a series of questions, and one of those questions I've asked in preparation for this series is how in the world will we see that battle won? As we look around us, we seem to be living in a time where we're not winning, where light is not winning, where darkness seems to be prevailing on every corner. For lack of any better term, it seems like we're fighting a bit of a hopeless battle today. If we're to be honest, we would confess that it seems like the wrong side is oftentimes winning in our world, doesn't it? Daily, we see the losses pile up. We see it feels like at times that the enemy has surrounded us on every corner. It seems like the good guys wearing the white cowboy hats are not winning. We see institutions fall. We see the rise of depravity and sin. We see the loss even amongst God's people of spiritual appetite. It's hard to imagine today as we stand here that victory truly is just around the bend when we go and watch the news. wonder if it was not like the people felt in May of 1940. The Germans had caught the Allied forces in France by surprise. In last week's message, I talked about the time of the phony war, and I used it as an illustration to say that it was time for the light to realize that the time of the phony war was over, that we must arise, we must understand that the enemy is plotting against us. But in May 1940, the phony war comes to its end because the Germans, the enemy, catch the Allied forces completely off guard as they rip through the Ardennes forest and they surround the Allies, forcing them back to the beaches of Dunkirk. They're stranded on the beach with an ocean to their back and the enemy on all three sides of them. Some 400,000 troops sat there waiting to be annihilated. You see, the battle in that moment was already lost. Many historians would say that the battle had been lost long before they got to the beaches of Dunkirk. The British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, orders for every seaworthy vessel in England to be mobilized to get the troops home. The best guess from his, his generals at that time was perhaps they might be able to get some 40,000, 10% of their troops back home, but that would be better than losing their entire army. And when it was all done through some fortuitous events and the sacrifice of some 30,000 French soldiers, the Germans end up being held at bay for some eight days and over 338,000 troops are rescued from the beaches of Dunkirk, and you've seen it popularized in the modern film. The British could go on to fight. This was a monumental moment in World War II. But as the people celebrated, Churchill reminded them that they really had not won any battle at all. In one of the most iconic speeches in history, you've heard, I'm certain, the very end of it, the, the prime minister was very clear with what had really taken place. You might have heard the end of it before. I'm sure you have. The prime minister ended his speech that day with these words, and I, I wish people would speak in such terms these days. There's an eloquence to them. 
He said these words to the British population and parliament. He said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight in the seas and the oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our tiny island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches and we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, and even if, which I do not for a moment believe he would concede, This island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world, speaking of us, with all of its power and might, might step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Everybody remembers that part of the speech, but what is less remembered is actually how he began that speech that day. He laid out a timeline of events. He talked about the breakdown of allied armies, the brute strength of the enemy, the power of the adversary, the bravery of the Air Force, and the sacrifice of so few which had held the Germans at bay. He talked about the bravery of those who had fought and died. He spoke about the miracle of the deliverance of so many. He spoke about all the military assets that had been lost beyond life itself. He thanked the Almighty God for His providential hand in their tactical retreat. But then he said these words, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. You see, wars are not won by evacuations. Churchill understood in May 1940 that wars are not won through retreat, church. And so he laid out a plan on that day by which the British Empire would, even in their loss, begin the process of taking the fight back to the enemy. Because victory is never brought through retreat, it is always brought through advancement. I wonder if Jesus understood these things and knew these things, or perhaps Churchill drew upon this strength, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Beloved, we have reached an unfortunate place in our present time where Christians too often we are claiming victory in the midst of our retreat. Whereas we once saw gospel advancement as our aim, making Christ known in every corner of the globe, today the American church especially seems to celebrate that we are in retreat. We don't seem to be interested in taking new ground. We aren't even trying to hold the ground that we had already won some years ago. We just live as those who want to retreat into our steeple houses and homes in the safety of our lives. Instead of claiming new ground for God's kingdom, we are too often satisfied by simply retreating into the comfort of our homes and church buildings where we imagine that the enemy would never attack us there. That's not how the Apostle Paul saw the gospel's work in the city of Corinth. If you haven't listened to last week's message I would encourage you to do so as I laid out some of the context and time in which Paul was writing these words. But in short order, he had told the he had gone to Corinth and he had preached the gospel, a major metropolis area, a major urban environment, a major, major piece of the Roman world. And he'd gone and he preached the gospel, and a number of people had committed themselves to Jesus Christ. They had committed their lives to following him. But in his absence, once he left, 
The darkness began to spread in Corinth. The darkness began to turn the tide of the war, as it were, in the apostles' absence. They began by attacking the apostle and his merry band of brothers. Everything from the character that they had espoused to the message that they preached came under the assault of the enemy. A decision needed to be made by the Apostle Paul and the other elders, those men who had gone to Corinth and won that city for the gospel. A decision was now in front of them as he writes this letter to them. Will they evacuate the city believing that the darkness has won, or will they lean in and stand strong in the gospel believing that the battle could still be won if the troops were amassed? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 down to verse number 6, in simple five, in a five simple verse, in five simple verses, the apostle lays out three important matters for the battle that was in front of them, and I would suggest for the battle that is in front of you and I in 2022. The first thing that he does in this moment is he tells them of their resolve. There would be no retreat on this day. He writes in verse number two, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There's often a temptation in our world to fight fire with fire, isn't there? To resort to the tactics of the enemy to try to win the battle that's in front of us. Those who had opposed the apostle had sought to destroy his character and his image. They accused him of being a a weakling, as not being all that spiritual, as one who was not even that good at preaching, and he was bald-headed, so he was ugly to boot, right? And somebody turned to the person to your right that's bald and say, he didn't mean that about you. They decided to destroy his character, his image. They decided that if they could take the man down, they would take the message down in the process. They would deceive the people through cunningness. They gave the appearance of wisdom in their speech, but their message was as old as time, these opponents. They wanted to lead the people into the form of mysticism for their own benefit. They wanted to try to change the gospel and the nature of the gospel, the root of the gospel, and their motives were not sincere. Their motives were actually so that they could gain power and take control of the church in Corinth. More than anything, they wanted to dismantle the gospel. They did so in two ways. The first thing they did was they tried to convince the people that the gospel was not enough. Paul had come and preached that faith in Christ was enough for the war to cease, for the war to be won. That he had come and preached to them that by faith in Jesus Christ, they could have new life, that the old person that they were would have gone away and a new person would have been made. That God was restoring, reconciling man to himself and to creation itself through the gospel and through grace alone. But these these opponents of Paul said, you know, that might be a piece of the puzzle, but there's more to it. We need to add to the gospel some morality, some legal form of of living, and, and some observance of holidays and things like that. Only if you would add to the gospel grace, uh, only if you would add to these things good works, then would the battle have been won. Second thing they did to dismantle the gospel was they tried to convince these folks that they had liberty in certain matters. Namely, What scholars said was the rise of agnosticism. Basically, 
These folks lived in a duplicitous mindset. They believed that your spirituality was seen in your ability to live in a fallen and sinful world and rise out of that in these great spiritual epitaphs or to be able to rise above that in these great spiritual proclamations. And so that's where we have the scene of the Lord's Supper where people are coming together. God's people are coming together and they're getting drunk and and they're having promiscuous relationships all together in one place. And then all of a sudden somebody comes out of that and says, oh, I have a word from the Lord. It was some form of mysticism. And Paul says, this is the challenge in front of the church at Corinth. They wanted to dismantle the gospel by adding to grace and by changing the nature of who God was and the people's understanding of that. There's this old adage that hurt people hurt people, and that adage rings true because what often happens is in the heat of the battle, we oftentimes, the losing side, will adopt the tactics of the enemy. If the other side begins to lie, well, we'll just lie as well because after all, the ends will justify the then I will become we got there. If the other side has begun to want win through cunning and deceit, then I will become deceitful and cunning as well. And Paul says this is the natural challenge that is in front of the church in Corinth. But then he lays out his clear position and that of his followers, those that were with him. He says there will be no retreat. There will be no going backwards. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. In other words, we will not do what the enemy is doing to win this war. We don't need to do that. We don't need to be disgraceful. We don't need to be cunning. We don't need to use underhanded ways to win this. That word renounce, it means to reject, not merely with our lips, though that's a piece of the puzzle, but with our lives themselves to literally turn away from. He says we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. The act of refusal, you know well, is being unwilling to give service to. In other words, I'm not going to give service to cunning, an act of accomplishing something through deceitful schemes or tampering with God's Word, changing it to fit my desires. You see, beloved, the enemy wanted Paul to change his tactics. He was tempted to get down into the mud with those that were already mud-slinging and to fight the battle on the enemy's turf. He wants you and I to do the same thing today. He wants us to turf in all the darkness around us, and instead of being the light, he wants us to fight on their turf. He wants us to join them in their actions. But the apostle says, we're done with all of that. There will be no retreating back to who we used to be. We are a completely new and different people. And not only will there be no retreat, but he says we're actually going to move forward because he says that we'll go forward by the open statement of truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone. Not only do I refuse to play your battle, Paul turns to his opponents and he says in this moment, we have the truth on our sides. We don't have to be deceptive. Because we have the truth, we are then going to commend ourselves to everyone, to put ourselves and our message out there. It's an old saying, probably of Hindu origin, though no one really knows for sure. And it goes a little something like this. The truth does not mind being questioned. A lie does not like being challenged. When the gospel writer John set the stage for the coming of Jesus, I read his words. He does so by viewing the world as a world full of darkness, and Jesus is the light in the midst of that darkness. Those metaphors, what might he mean by light versus darkness? Well, the answer is that if you will go to his other epistles, 
you find that John sees darkness as representative of lies and deceit. And likewise, he sees light as representative of the truth. And so he's suggesting that the world is a place that is filled with darkness, with lies, with deceit. But Jesus Christ had come into the world. He were the truth shining forth brightly into the darkness. He had come to expose the lies. That's why it's only John's gospel that records in John chapter 14 that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He draws this, I believe, through his Jewish theology and upbringing on the part of the gospel writer John here. Because if you go back to Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve is all based upon what? It's based upon a lie. The enemy comes and he turns to Adam and Eve and he says, God told you you would die. I tell you that's not true. You'll not die. Instead, God doesn't want you to do these things because then you will become like God. Essentially, you'll be able to take control of your own life. The enemy's plan is to get us to believe a lie. It's been his plan all along. It's been his plan worked out in human history. A lie that you and I could run our own lives, that we're in control, that we don't need to live in submission to God. And beloved, the world has bought that lie, and they filled the world with it. But Christ has come into the world to expose that lie. And now the apostle says, we will stand in the truth in this moment. We will stand in the truth and we will commend ourselves to everyone. We will not back down. We will move forward. That sets the stage for his second statement, and that is not only is our position one of advancement without retreat, but then he defines what the battle is itself. So many wars are fought because we don't understand the battle. We don't have a full glimpse of the picture of what's really going on. There are a thousand examples from World War II and this is a series I've been looking forward to because it's not hard to get illustrations. They're literally everywhere, especially for somebody who studied history and wanted to be a history professor. In the Battle of Britain, for example, the Germans are attacking the British with their air force, the Luftwaffe, right? And they never seem to understand what's going on in that battle. They start off by attacking airports, and they don't realize that the British have set up a line of defense known as Chain Ho, which uses radar as well as spotters to understand what attacks were coming. They don't understand why their planes keep getting shut down because their intelligence is not giving them accurate information, and so they're losing planes at an unsustainable rate. And then critically, when their tactics actually do start working, they don't know that they're working. They have the Royal Air Force on its knees, but they get false intelligence and they stop attacking, and thus Britain wins the Battle of Britain. At Pearl Harbor, the Japanese high command all believed that they had essentially defeated the Americans in one single battle. Why? Well, because they had sunk or damaged almost the entire fifth fleet of battleships, which my grandfather on the file side was a part of. But the Supreme Naval Commander Yamamoto goes into a depression after Pearl Harbor, after this great victory, because he knows that the one thing they didn't do was they didn't touch the American aircraft carriers. The Japanese high command makes this into this great victory. They thought that the battleship was the supreme vessel of the sea, but they didn't understand that World War II was going to be an entirely different type of battle, a different type of war, one in which the aircraft carrier would show its supremacy. Beloved, a great many wars are lost in this world simply because we don't have a clear view of what the real battle is. So for us, we think that the war that we're fighting in our society is one over pagan sexuality. 
We think that the war we're fighting is one over politics. We think that the war that we're fighting is over systematic racism. We think that the war we're fighting is over education. We think that the war we're fighting is over social media. But in reality, none of those are the real war. They are merely signs of who is winning the war. They are not the battle itself because we have not properly understood the battle. The church is losing the war. You see, beloved, the real war in front of us in 2022 is not those things. The real war in front of us is the gospel itself. He writes in verse number 3 that the problem in this world is that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In simple terms, he says there is something that has blinded people's eyes to the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And what is it that has blinded the people from Christ? What is it that has blinded their minds, blinded their eyes, blinded their ability to understand Christ? Verse number four, in their case, he writes, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Simple terms, what he's saying in this moment is that people are blind to the hope of Christ. They are blind to the gospel because the one who rules in this world, the devil himself, the devil himself has blinded them. They have fallen in love with this world. They have fallen in love with the cultural worldview and the spirit of the present age. And those things have prevented them from seeing the truth, have prevented them from seeing the hope of the gospel. And so that is where the real battle is at. And if the gospel is the real battlefield, then he's implying that winning the war isn't about winning elections or taking over school boards or controlling social media or critical race training in, uh, in our universities, but rather, no, having identified our position, we will not retreat. Defining the battle, the battle is over the gospel and man's commitment to Christ. He then lays out the third statement, our only way to victory is through our weapon, verse 5, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse number six, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown into the hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand what I've said. Lections are important. You've heard me talk about this many, many times here in our church. That is one of the single greatest ways the Christian can impact his culture for good is by showing up at election booths and voting for candidates which reflect God's values. School boards are important. Education is important. Social media is important. Criti uh, systematic racism is important. But the reality is that Paul is saying, he's implying in this moment that the really the only hope for this world, the only hope for this battle is the, is the weapon that only the Christian possesses, the hope that is in Christ Jesus. We love great military stories about how a small group of people stand against some mighty foe and through determination and courage overcome innumerable obstacles to snatch victory from defeat. But in every one of those stories, there's something more about the grit, more than just the courage that brings the victory. What oftentimes happens is in a turn of events normally found in how one side will use a weapon, find a strength that the other had not known about, that is how that victory is snatched. Our victory 
victory, beloved, is snatched in this moment. It isn't found in sheer determination on your part or my part. It's not found in courage on your part or on my part. It's not found on unfiltered hope on your part or on my part. Our victory is found in the weapon that God has given to us, and our weapon is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. You want to change a city? Proclaim Jesus Christ. You want to change a nation? Proclaim Christ. You want to change a school? Proclaim Christ. You want to end racism? Proclaim Christ. You want to end injustice? Proclaim Christ. You want to stop crime? Proclaim Jesus Christ. That is our weapon. That is our weapon in this battle. Beloved, the hour is late and my time has come up, so I must stop here. But this is really the place that I least want to stop. Maybe because it's Labor Day weekend, you all would just stay for a couple more hours because there is in this a desire in all of us when we hear of the battle that we are rejuvenated, we know we can win. There's this temptation to believe that we will win by sheer courage or will or by force. And what Paul lays out next here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is actually the exact opposite. Beloved, the battle is too great for me today. The battle is too great for you. The darkness has spread too far, and the enemy has conquered much territory. Should we win, and we will win, beloved, we will win not on our own strength, but we will win in the strength that only Christ provides and Him alone. In fact, if we were to read forward, Paul will next say, as we will encounter in our next message, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. You and I are not the special piece of the puzzle. You and I are not the special piece that's going to bring victory in the world full of darkness. We are not the special piece. What we are is earthen vessels that hold a treasure inside, and that treasure inside is Jesus Christ. Therefore, our way of winning this war is through the proclamation of that treasure. We have no regrets this morning. We will not look back. We have no reserves. We will not assume the enemy's tactics. We won't fight the battle the way that he does through cunning and deceit by changing God's word to make it more palatable or acceptable in our current environment. We will have no reserves and we will not retreat. This church, this body of believers will march boldly forward proclaiming Jesus Christ and him alone. Will you join us in the mission? You've been listening to Pastor Chris Guffey preach through his new series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Catch us next week for part three. If you'd like to know more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us on the web at www.cornerstonesedalia.com.